Welcome back to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. I'm happy to welcome two guest experts to the show today. William Sticksrude and Ned Johnson are the authors of the national best-selling book, The Self-Driven Child. They join us today to discuss their new book, What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. William and Ned have studied what influences and motivates kids to take action in their own best interests and have years of practice coaching parents and educators on how to communicate with kids to help them make healthy choices. Bill and Ned, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for coming on. So your book compares and contrasts different common parenting styles. You advocate for what you call the parent as consultant role as coaching with kids to help them make good choices. Can you describe what that means to both of you and why it is better than other approaches to raising children? Well, you know, there's, there's been research on parenting styles since at least the 1960s and, it, and just continually the evidence, at least in Western societies, is that work, what works best is not kind of a, a, not an authoritarian kind of I, I'm I'm in charge. You do what I say, or a laissez-faire. You're just kind of you're on your own kind of kid. You do whatever you want. It's, it's that authoritative where we have natural authority of parents. It's because we're we're bigger and we're we're, we're we know more and we have better judgment. We're more experienced, but we treat kids respectfully. And when when in this authoritative parenting. You treat kids respectfully, like they have a brain in their head and they want their lives to work. And I found as a clinical neuropsychologist, I, I, I test kids for a living. And I just, early in my career, I saw so many kids who have learning disabilities or ADHD, and they just be World War III after, about doing the kids' homework. And I wrote an article for McCall's Magazine in 1986, it just suggested, tell your kid, I love you too much to fight with you about your homework. And think about yourself more as, as your, your kid's homework consultant to help them to kind of figure out what, what's the problem here, how can we solve it, than the kid's boss or manager or the homework police. And so it's, it's this idea where forcing kids doesn't work that, that anymore. I mean, you, you, kids know that nobody can really make them do anything. But what we want to do is develop a relationship with our kids where they trust us, they respect us, and we set limits. But we do it in a respectful way that includes the kids. And we think about ourselves, especially as kids get older, as, as people who, who have experience about life that we can share with kids, and, and, but not as people who always know better or feel that we need to force our kids to do things. Mm. Now, I do love that. To... Yeah, and I, I'd add a few things to that. I mean, one is that, um, particularly depending on the, the, your kid's temperament, um, I think most parents have had the experience of having what they feel is really helpful, useful, you know, perhaps even profound advice. And we, we sort of force it on our kids and they kind of bat it right back at us, which now we're, now, now, now we're really in a pickle because one, we're, we're annoyed, we're frustrated, we're, we're doubly concerned. And two, the kid hasn't gotten the information, right? And so part of the, 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 the idea of this book is simply that for all the parents and all the educators who want their kids to do as well as they can and want to help them on the path, we're just trying to take an approach of what's what's effective, right? And, and ramming advice down people's throats just rarely is that effective. 
And then, you know, from a motivational perspective, we're, we're big proponents of what's called self-determination theory that holds that to develop intrinsic motivation, autonomous as opposed to, you know, carrots and sticks, and I'm doing it because I've been bribed or threatened. The three components for that are we need a sense of competency, a sense of relatedness, and a sense of autonomy. And so if we force things on kids or do it for them, they don't have the sense of competence because they have the sense that someone else is responsible for their success. And we're, we're undermining our relatedness and we're certainly blowing up their autonomy. Where with this, with this consultant approach, we can hang there with them, be, be there to offer all the help and support, whatever they, they feel that they need, but, they, but they are, they're in the driver's seat. So their competency is higher. And we maintain that warm, close relationship with them and support their autonomy. So, you know, as, as we would say, we want all kids to work hard and to do well, but more and fundamentally, we want them to want to work hard, to do this of their own volition because it matters to them, not because we're, we, we or any other adults are, are, are forcing this on them. So this part right here seems to be a really central component of the parenting approach that you're describing, which is helping kids make healthy choices based on intrinsic motivation, as opposed to some kind of external motivator. Like you'll do it because I say so is a parenting style that I think many of us were raised with. And so you're really highlighting uh, the fact that parents need to highlight the fact that their kids do have choices and you draw from motivational interviewing to help uh, ground yourself in research. And I loved um, over and over in the book, you made a point of saying, well, you may as well highlight for your kids that they don't have to do what you're suggesting. You give the example of parents helping their kids adjust to ADHD medication. You go as far as saying, well, you know, you could even hide the pill under your tongue or throw a tantrum on the floor all day. You're almost giving them suggestions of how not to do it. And could you talk about that strategy, why that's so important? <laughs> well, I, I was trained as a therapist, a family therapist um, early in my career. And, and what was pretty popular then was paradoxical therapy where you kind of prescribe, I think you need to continue having this problem. And so when my kids were little, I, that um, if I'd suggest something and my son would fight me on it when he was four, you know, I'd say, you know, it seems like you're trying to, like you think that, it seems that you think, I think I can make you do this. I couldn't make you do this. All you'd have to do is flop on the floor or start screaming or, or peeing your pants. I mean, why couldn't you make you do this? And just doing that, it's so disarming. I mean, it sounds like you're giving, it sounds scary to do because you're giving up your authority, but all you're doing is simply acknowledging the fact that you can't make another human, human being do something against their will. And, and I think that just for me, I, I found that so empowering and so freeing that, I, that it's, it's really, in some ways, it's like a judo move. When you, you tell people, the kid you're talking about with the ADHD medication. He'd been, people have been on him, including his pediatrician, for six years trying to get him to, to take the medication, and he refused. He comes to my office, and I simply say, I don't want anybody to try to make you take this medication. And I, I suggested how he could beat, beat them if they tried. I said, but you're smart enough to make a good decision for yourself about this. In my opinion, it would make sense to try the medicine and just see what it's like. If it really helps you, you could use it or not. If it doesn't help you, you aren't going to use it. And he, he tried the medicine like a couple, two days later, and it was life-changing. It was literally his grades. I mean, this isn't always the case with ADHD medicine, but his, his grades went from A to some C plus to A's in all the subjects within, uh, within like six weeks. It was mm -hmm. like turning on a light switch. And for him, 
No, that, that why, why wouldn't he take it once he discovered that, that it really helped? And so my, my experience is that whenever we feel like, we, like we're trying to force, trying to, we're, we're trying to use the power of our will to make kids do things, then unless it's an emergency, that we, want to, we, we want to just remind ourselves, I really, force doesn't work. That, that, and what we try to do in the, in, in the, the book, the, our new book, What Do You Say, is it gives, kids, it gives parents language for negotiating things with kids that, that, that don't require force, that, that, that are skillful. And as I said, kind of like in some ways like a judo move, where we're changing the energy in a relationship in a way that, that's respectful to kids. We acknowledge I can't make you do this. Um, and, and yet, uh, let, let's think about how to get this done. And part of it, I would add to, I love that, Bill. Part of it, we want to remind ourselves that just as it's hard for us as parents to feel kind of low sense of control, how do I get my, how do I make my kid do this? A low sense of control is, is stressful for everyone and particularly for kids, you know, who are less developed, you know, emotional regulation and brains than, than we adults have. And when we force things on kids, it because it can so lower their sense of control and be so stressful, and, and particularly for, for kind of anxious kids on top of it, when we force this advice and, the, and their stress response goes off, the amygdala flares, right? Then the, the prefrontal cortex, the, the, the part of the brain that can really grapple with pros and cons and can really put things into perspective is nowhere to be seen. And so part of this, this approach is, when we can do this in a way that takes force off the table, that lowers that, the, the, the sense that we're gonna make kids do this, if it quiets their stress response and makes them much more kind of shields down, right? And much more open to being able to hear the, the advice, ideally good advice that we, we have to share. And oftentimes, even just by saying, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna force, I'm not gonna, you know, if their decision-making processes come online, they can come to this conclusion, oftentimes, even without our advice, simply because we're, we're calming their brains and able, making them able to think better. And there's a, the story that I love, I mean, all of us have gone through, um, you know, COVID this past year and, and, and trying to get our, air quotes, kids, get our kids to do school on Zoom has, has been a bit of a thing. I have a daughter who's a rising senior in high school who's got at least 20 IQ points on me and is very intense. So there's no winning arguments with her ever. And she had, I don't know, 14 months on Zoom. And to say that she was done with this is, is very much an understatement. And so repeatedly, you know, not every day, but, but off and on she'd come and she'd drag into the kitchen. She's like, do I have to go to class today? Cause she just didn't uh, get it. It was uh, terrible. And so I, I said to her, I said, you know, I've been doing this for years. Say, look, obviously I can't make you go to school. I can't make you go to class. You can just close your, I got work to do. You can just climb, you know, turn on the internet and go, go right back in, into your bed. And, and, and I can't make you do it. But then I, I, my little pivot this year was to say also then, but also I can't tell you that you don't have to go to class because it's not my class. This is, this is your class, this is your school and I'm not your teacher. So I can't tell you that. And she gave me this kind of harumph looking face. And I said, ah, I said, my, my guess is that you're hoping that I was saying you didn't have to go to class and then you're off the hook. But mm -hmm. as it is, this, this has to be your decision. And she sort of scrunched up her nose and walked away because I nailed it, right? She wanted to, this was a stressful situation and she, but she didn't want to have to deal with it. So she was asking me whether I would make that decision for her. And sometimes she'd, she'd go off and climb back in bed, but nine times out of 10, 10 minutes later, she may be a little bit late, I'd hear her on, on her Zoom class. 
And we know that in order for, for, for the healthy development of brains, we have to deal with things in a measured way that are slightly stressful. And we need to grapple with them and pros and cons it and figure out the best path for ourselves. If I had told her all the reasons to go to class, she, you know, one, she'd probably reject and two, I've deprived her of the opportunity of having to weigh these re real concerns. This is boring as all get out. I hate being on Zoom, legit. The, this class is important to me because this is my education and I want to go to college, legit. And this way she gets to ha hang with it simply because I take my, you know, take my thumb off the scale. Mm -hmm. Well, I like what both of you are describing because you are in a way modeling for the kid how to make a good decision, which is not just <laughs> jumping to the end conclusion, but more like showing your math, your logic along the way. And so you've <laughs> referenced a couple of times already uh, exploring pros and cons and going through the process of uh, looking at ambivalence. Could you chat about that a little bit more and how parents themselves might even model how they approach ambivalence? Well, this, I, I think that um, we decided in, in, this, in our second book to incorporate ideas from motivational interviewing, which is a way of, of talking with, with people that, that, that's designed to help them discover their own motivation. And it, it involves kind of active listening and really list, listening respectfully and, and, and trying to, to let people know that we're understanding uh, and, 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 and and commenting in a way that, that can help people basically come to their own conclusions about why it's important to change. And one of the fundamental insights of motivational interviewing is that most people are ambivalent about changing. You know, if, if, you, if you're a C plus student, you, you probably want to do better, but you know that it's going to be a lot of work. And, and I, I've, had the, I, I've tried really hard and I still haven't done that much better. What's the point? And so if, if we argue from this perspective, if we argue one side of a child's ambivalence, you need to work hard and you can get those grades up over and over. The kid will argue to himself the other side. It's not that big, I don't really need to do this, it's too hard. And what we wanna do is, is listen in this respectful way that we describe in, in one of the chapters in the book on change, on the science of change. Um, and but what we wanna do is listen and, and eventually, if, if we don't jump in and say, you need to do this, kids will often say, I, I'd like to do better. I wish there was a way I could do better. And th then we can play a consultant. We can consult with them about, I, we can share ideas. I got, you know, I, I got some thoughts about that. Can I share them with you? That kind of idea is respectful and, and increases the likelihood that a little kid will see this as an ally and a supporter as opposed to somebody who's um, not happy with them or trying to make them change. Mm -hmm. So I mean, we, we just wrote an article on ambivalence. Um, I'm not sure where it's gonna end up, but it's just, it's such a powerful idea. Um, and I, and, um, and there, there's a story in it that, that actually comes from um, a, a woman we know who's a school counselor who was, who was, who was uh, treating, a, was actually uh, meeting with this girl who's smoking a lot of pot. And the counselor first said, I, I'm, not gonna, I'm, I'm not here to tell you that, that you need to change or how bad, that, that this is going to ruin your health or whatever. He said, I, I, but I'd like to understand what, what you get out of it. Tell me what, what, what and she, 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 the girl kind of waxed rhapsodic about how, how great pot is. And, 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 the, and the, the counselor just kind of, kind of fed back to, so, so you're saying that you feel a lot less uh, anxious in social situations. So that sounds like a good, good thing. And eventually the girl said, yeah, but, but it's really expensive. 
And the counselor asked, so if you had more money, if you spent less money on pot, what could you do? Well, I could get my hair done, I get new shoes. And that started a whole process of, of this girl cutting down on pot smoking, spending her money on other things that are important, wanting to do better in school. And it came not from you know, no, 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 but listening respectfully and helping the kid come to her own change language. Mm-hmm. That's so important in building trust with kids. I think in the olden days, we would hear things more like, you know, if you do drugs, you'll grow hair on your palms or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then when kids figured out that was a lie, oh, what else are my parents telling me? That's just absolutely <laughs> not true. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the role that empathy plays. That seems like a real difference, both in the, you know, if we can play, compare authoritative to that authoritarian or... Mm-hmm hands-off approach, empathy seems to be one of the ways that you develop uh, alignment with kids. Yeah, I mean, part of it with empathy, one thing that's important for us to remind ourselves of is that logic doesn't come hard emotions, right? If I'm really upset about something and, and, and Ann and Bill started giving me all the reasons why I should feel differently about it, that's, it, it's, just not very, it's just not very effective, right? And so again, we're always trying to take an approach that, that's effective. Um, one of the things about, so empathy is, is simply acknowledging, you know, and, and seeing the, the reasons why you feel that way. And I, and I can see how, see how that is. And the, the tendency that people think, you know, for us, it's really kind of empathy and validation. Um, you know, if, if, a, if a kid comes in and, you know, blew a test, right, and got some terrible grade on that, you know, it's easy to start jumping, well, what, did you talk to the teacher? How much did you study? You know, all these kind of things that try to get to the solution of it. But in that experience, right, if you came home from work, and, and, and if I came home from work and said, I totally blew that, that presentation, and my spouse started giving me advice, that's not what I want to hear, right? You want to say things like, gosh, that sounds like you had a really hard day, or it must have been really frustrating to, to not do as well on that test as you want, wanted to, or it, it must have, it, you must have, I can understand how you'd be upset if you felt like you're excluded when you didn't get invited to that party. And as parents, it can feel like it's our job to disapprove of when things don't go well, <laughs> right? Well, what do you mean you didn't, st- what do you mean you, oh my God, you blew that test? You, do, you, do you understand how important junior year is? Well, chances are, chances are, yeah. But we want to start with empathy because it empathy is a, it, well, several things. One, again, it calms the, the stress part of the brain and allows kids to be in a position to start solving things for themselves. If we go back to wanting to up, up kids' intrinsic motivation, we know that that relatedness, feeling connected to parents or teachers or coaches is incredibly important in supporting that in, internal motivation. And three, from a stress perspective, there's probably nothing as being feeling close to your parents is about as close as we get to a silver bullet against the effects you know, of, of stress, anxiety, depression in, in, in young folks. And from our perspective, it sure feels like the outside world is provide is throwing enough, you know, lobbying enough stress at our kids. We really want home to be a safe base because kids won't stretch themselves, they won't push themselves to try even harder if when they come home, they think they're gonna get the third degree or get blasted for underperforming. All of us deserve a place that feels safe both physically and emotionally. Now, the challenge I think with empathy is that, that when people hear some of that language, they think, well, you're approving that, approving that. Well, you can empathize without approving of, of behavior, even if we feel like it's bad behavior, right? You know, oh my gosh, I was late to class and, you know, and, and, and Mr. Miller just blasted me. 
well, you were late to class. So no, no, no. Boy, that must have been pretty hard to get singled out when you when you walked in late and everyone was looking at you. It's a, it's a true statement. It's a true statement, right? It doesn't mean that I approve of that behavior. Um, and, and when we do this, it again puts us in a position where we can then eventually offer that advice and offer offer feedback in, in that consultative way that Bill mentioned before. Mm-hmm. There's nothing right or wrong about feelings. They just are. And they're an indication of our needs, what we, what we need in that moment. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And it's just, I mean, all the research on, on closeness, I mean, we, 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 we interviewed dozens of, of teenagers for, for this book and middle school and high school kids. And we asked them, who do you feel closest to? And it was invariably what they said is, is, is the, the people who listen without judging me and don't tell me what to do. It was so interesting. And, and, and it's, that emotional closeness is just such a big deal. And it's not like you're, you know, you're going to have the same level kind of, kind of, kind of closeness with, with a 17-year-old than you do with, with a seven-year-old. But maintaining that close, loving, supportive relationship is, is, is just huge in terms, of, in terms of devastating, in terms of preventing mental health problems, developing motivation. And really that, that expression of empathy, of, of listening without judgment, that, that, that unconditional love, I mean, it's huge. give some really good suggestions of how to do that, how to get to know your child and build empathy and really discover who they are. One of the suggestions you give in the book is spending at least one hour a week of one-on-one time. I I have two siblings, two older siblings who are twins. And Mm. we learned that as young kids that, you know, each twin is an individual kid. They have different interests. And so my parents would take them out uh, one of them got to see Star Wars and the other one got to go <laughs> mini golf or whatever. And that was, they continue to this day to say how important that was to have individual identities. Can you talk about that a little bit more, how to get to know your kid? No, I, I, I feel so lucky that, that when, I, I, when I finished my, my graduate degree in, in, in school psychology, educational psychology, um, and became a clinical psychologist, People assume once I had my PhD that I knew everything there was to know about raising kids. And I, and I, I didn't learn anything that was useful about raising kids, really. So I read, and, and I, I read this book about how to really let kids know that you feel that they feel loved. And it, it seems commonsensical, but I, I'd never thought about what you spend time with. Them. You spend time alone with them. And it made the point that you can go out to dinner with a couple and, and, and you and your, your spouse and another couple and, get, and you get to know each other. But the way you get to really know somebody is being alone with them. And so that this seems so so uh, so right to me that, that I schedule an hour a week um, on Sundays back to back with both of my kids from the time that they are probably maybe five and, and until they left for high school. And, and what we did changed together. But part of the message I wanted to give them was that there's 168 hours in a week. And if I can't find two to spend with you, there's something wrong with, with, with this picture. Mm-hmm. And also that I, I wouldn't take a phone call. I, I, I said, that, that I, I need this time with you to, 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 so that we, we really stay connected and we really know each other. And certainly many people, many clinical psychologists and, and, and other therapists, uh, this is one of the first things to recommend. You got to discourage kid, make sure a parent, each parent is spending some time alone with them each week. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd, I'd add to that. I mean, we're great fans of the work of John and Julie Gottman. Uh, and their work all about how to communicate in ways that 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 create create emotional closeness, 
And they have a line where they make the point that the, that one of the ways you get to understand people who really know each other is by paying attention to subtle changes in emotion. And if you go back to Bill's point of, you know, you know, two couples going out to dinner or, you know, family four around the dinner table, if there are three other people there that I'm trying to pay attention to, by definition, I can't be giving all of my attention to one kid. Now, I've spent something close to 50,000 hours now doing one-on-one -on -one test prep, which the tests are pretty dreary as everyone would imagine, but the kids are great, right? And so I have this, I've had this wonderful opportunity to work one-on-one -on -one with kids. And I remember a, a decade or two ago, and I was younger men then, as I suppose we all were a couple of decades ago, and um, there was an independent girls school in DC where, where we tutored just a ton of kids there. And a colleague observed that what an interesting, what a wonderful opportunity I had because I was working with this, I don't know, they're 17 years old, right? And I was totally into them and their success. Whatever mattered to them is what mattered to me, but I wasn't grading them, right? I wasn't writing read a recommendation for them. I wasn't, you know, telling them to clean up their room or, you know, or be responsible. I wasn't, I had no responsibility apart from what was meaningful to them. And so every week I could ask, you know, how, how, how did the, the field hockey game go? Did that paper work out the way that you wanted to? How was that party? You know, it was the movie really good, right? And then eventually transition into talking about the test stuff as well. But when I could sit there and, you know, talk about this or throw a math problem at them and you could see there these little tiny micro expressions of the smallest furrowing of the brown realize, oh, that was a little, in, a little intense. And I could, you know, I could back off by 10% or if they started to drift off, I could make a little more intense by 10%. And that's, just, that's something that's, that's just really hard for teachers to do. And something that I also imagine a lot of kids don't get. I mean, Cause it's just an, it, numerically it's the nature of school. But to think about that, that we as parents can of course do that you know, and find an hour and let's go have coffee and tell me about whatever. And just to take interest in kids and the things that matter to them rather than the things that matter to us. Kind of, it's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. I, I, met a woman, I met a woman this week who has 18 siblings. And I met, it'd be a little harder <laughs> for her parents. <laughs> yeah, spend, spend my, mom was one, my mom was one of 16. So she Whoa. could relate to that, yep. uh, yeah. Yeah, so maybe 10 minutes a week that breeze gets Sure, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what you're describing, it really sounds like a relief to the kid. You know, they're used to being told what to do in all areas in their, in their life. But for me as an adult therapist who focuses on burnout prevention, that sounds like a relief to the parent. You know, so many times I hear parents say, I'm sick of nagging or being the bad cop. Okay, we'll give yourself an hour out of the week uh, to do something different. You give the suggestion in the book, if your kid's really into gaming and you're tempted to disapprove about how many hours a day they're spending gaming, we'll sit next to them and really understand the game and, and see why they're into it mm. so that you can relate to that. There, there was a story, <clears throat> this is several years back, Bill and I were given a talk at a school and there was a dad there whom I knew socially, um, I knew of socially, who was an heir to a phenomenal amount of money I'm just breathtaking amount. And he had, and he was talking about his, his son who was, I think maybe five or six at that time. And we were talking about technology. And he said, all, basically all that my son will do is just is lock himself in his room and play this game and not knowing much about it. So what, what game does he play? And the dad just says, I don't know, something stupid. And the pain that you felt in that, because here's this man who has every, 
he has everything except for this connection to this beautiful little boy who's his only child, right? The most precious thing in the world to him. And he's locked away from him. And, and you could just feel the pain that, that this, this little boy is choosing to him some stupid game over dad. But I thought, my goodness, this doesn't change by, his, by the dad, by the kid changing his behavior. This changes by the dad changing his energy, right? And so we were able to talk to him a little bit about it. And I, I'm not quite sure what the denouement of that story was. But yeah, I mean, if you have kids who are all they want to do is something that feels like a waste of time, before you go to the judgment that that's a waste of time, it's a heck of a good idea to understand what it is. I mean, I talked about this with my daughter, who during COVID was watching way more YouTube and television than I thought was appropriate, given what I think I know about the effect of technology on the developing brain. But, you know, and so I, so Norris Nuts, those are great, you know, and, you know, the, how are the, how's the Nuts family doing from Australia, right? And trying to understand this so I could at least ask questions and she could talk on, or my view, prattle on for five minutes about things that I didn't care that much about myself, but I learned to. And then from that, we could transition to something that, that, that maybe there was some more common ground on. And so in many ways, you know, if you want kids to meet you, you kind of got to meet, from my perspective, meet them where they are before trying to get them, go, go towards them before they'll come towards you. And, and the people who study how to help kids kind of manage technology effectively, you know, they, they say, Play, play with them. Really try to understand. If you treat them respectfully, they're much more likely to, 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 to take your advice or to, or, or to brainstorm with you about, it's not, you know, I, I gave a lecture to maybe 25 ninth graders in Houston a couple of years ago. And I said, how many, of, how many of you are in front of a screen, whether it's a phone or a computer or iPad, more than, more than you want to be? All 25 raised their hand. <laughs> it's not like they're aware that there's not a cost to this. And this idea of treating respectfully, of trying to understand, and then help them. And certainly, we, 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 there's some kids where we, we just have to enforce limits at various, various times. But for most kids, we can negotiate. We can negotiate something that feels fair to you and feel fair to me. It's much less stressful. And um, you know, this approach, it, it, it can be a little... <laughs> It can be a little intimidating at first, a little stressful at first, because it requires us in some ways to, 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 to zip our lip and, and to sit on our hands, if, because if we want kids to make their own decisions and learn from their own mistakes. But ultimately, it's so freeing, and it ultimately, so, because we, we stop trying to control what we really can't control. I'd love for you both to share some of the language that you use in the book for walking that fine line for behaviors that can certainly become addictive or, you know, as the teenagers are telling you, I already feel like it's outside of my control. How do you maintain that parent as consultant role when talking with a kid who's <clears throat> maybe doing behaviors that they don't even want to be doing themselves? Well, I, I just spoke with a, a student last Thursday um, who is wildly, um, incredibly anxious, de clinically depressed, um, wildly dysregulated in terms of sleep. I mean, he's, you know, stayed up until three o'clock in the morning, you know, and sleeping, you know, his mom had to, he was 15 minutes late for a 2 p.m. appointment, right? Whoops. And so I caught wind of this. And so I just spent an hour of his parents' money talking to him about sleep. And one of the questions I asked him, I said, I said, if you wanted to, if you wanted to, are there ways that you think you could get more sleep? 
right? And I always start with that if you if you wanted to, because it's a way that I'm. Yep, this is this has to be your want or your gig, right? Um, and so I got this text from his mom afterwards. You know, it was just like, oh my goodness, um, that was so 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 helpful. And and and, and I, I mean, I I have read enough about sleep and sleep insufficiency and best practice and Matthew Walker and all this kind of stuff that I can, I can sort of hold court on at least for an hour. The teenager hasn't learned that much yet. But also, so much of this is really trying to talk with kids, talk with kids, not talk at them. So it feels it feels respectful, and 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 I, I mean, again, because they've got to do this as had as has Bill, one on one for years. You can we we have this opportunity to to really be respectful towards kids, um, in in the language, so so they don't feel like we're, we're you know as, as as we maintain our first book. We believe the kids have a brain in their heads and they want their lives to work out. And so, so when we, we have this language that approaches that that way. Um, but so you're so so specific language that would get at that. Um, you know, part, we, we kind of talk about empathy and validation and then kind of move in this consultant role. And so, you know, what I what I ask about sleep, so what time do, do you have a sense of what time you're normally getting to bed at night? And they say three o'clock. And so, well, you know, do you have a sense of, you know, is that because you're, you know, it's just more fun or you're, you know, are you trying to get to I mean, just and sort of asking questions in ways that are in terms of the question part that are in, inquisitive, not inquisitorial, right? Because a, a lot of the questions that are directed at teenagers, well, well, why are you up that late? That's not really a question. That's that's an accusation with a question mark at the end, right? And so some of it, I think of the language, and th I think some of it also very much is the energy behind it, because you know people people feel that, um, and and this in this kid especially felt that I was on his side. I understand, you know, for, for for instance, with with anxiety, we know that difficulty sleeping is both a cause and a symptom of being anxious, right? And so so. Um, so that would be part of it for me. Bill, you jump in about some kind of specific other language. Well, I'll, I'll just say that in both of our books, we, uh, we talk about collaborative problem solving that, that has been part has been a staple of, of, of this, this kind of positive parenting or authoritative parenting where we talk with kids to solve problems. And, and, and the collaborative problem solving as, as kind of described by Ross Green and Stuart Alvin, um, it's a process that it always starts with empathy. You know, I, I know how much these games mean to you. And really, I tell you the truth, it makes me happy to see how confident you feel and just connecting with other friends and this and that. But I also know, I, you know, I read a lot about this. And I also know that, that being in front of on this thing for six hour days, it, it's just not good for you. And I can't live with myself as a parent if, 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 if it's going to go like this. So we've got to figure out a way that works for you and works for me. So th th then we brainstorm. So again, we, we, it's not that we that that giving kids a sense of control of their lives doesn't mean you get to be in control of everything. You get to be the boss of the family. It just means that you aren't helpless. You aren't hopeless. You aren't passive. You aren't resigned. It's things you can't change. And I think that um, so that's collaborative problem solving, for, particularly for technology and sleep, are really important because. You can't make a kid fall asleep, but you can, in a problem-solving way, say, you know, I, I can't in good conscience, you got, the kid has a driver's license, I can't in good conscience let you drive, let you have a car, 
and unless I know that you've gotten at least seven hours of sleep. And, and, and I, I can't be in, in your room watching you, but I want you to keep asleep long. And so it's, it's having this kind of conversation with, with kids. And, and again, we, we start with empathy and then we explain our, you know, our, our position. You know, this is hard for me. I don't, I don't agree with this. I don't feel right about this. And I don't, and I don't, want, to res, I don't want to be resentful towards you. I mean, that, that's another powerful thing we can say. I don't want to, res, and I, if I go along with this, I'm not only going to feel like a bad parent, I'm going to feel resentful. I don't want to resent you. So let's figure out something that works for both of us. And if I, if I could add one point to that, there's, um, <clears throat> there's a, a wonderful uh, um, wonderful guy named Ron McGinn who talks, who's a kind of expert on, on communication. Um, and he talks about, you know, in our conversation with other folks, we make kind of deposits to our emotional bank account by showing care and respect. And we make withdrawals by kind of inconveniencing people. And one of the things that I think can happen, we as parents can make mistakes of telling kids they need to do this, that, the other, because we care, you know, and we're, we're so concerned about the short-term ramifications, the long-term ramifications, but we can do it in a way that shows care, but that isn't respectful. Right. And so, you know, you could say, you know, sweetheart, my God, you've got that test tomorrow. You, you know, you need to go to sleep. Otherwise you're not going to do well. Well, we're, we love them and we're so concerned, you know, that if they, don't, if, they, if they put in this hard work and they don't do well, that they won't get opportunities and the care is out our ears, but the respect is missing from that because what we're not saying, but what the kid is kind of feeling is, you know, you're an idiot. <laughs> and if I weren't here to tell you to go to bed, you'd stay up all night and you're going to blow it. Mm -hmm. Something like that, right? At least that's what it feels like to the kid, where if you say, Oh my goodness, you've been studying for hours now. I mean, it's, it's one o'clock. I think you're tested. You have to be up at eight o'clock tomorrow, right? Gosh, is, are we, are, can I help you wrap this up so you can get enough sleep so that all this hard work you've done that you're able to do your best so you both have the stuff and have a brain that can, can work as well as it can tomorrow? You know, anything, you know? And so it, it, moves towards the, 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 it moves towards this balance of both showing care and showing respect. Um, and the, for me, one of the things that I know, my sort of inner barometer is that if I'm feeling frustrated or impatient when I'm talking to my kid, my kid is unquestionably feeling it as well. And they're going to perceive this. And particularly teenagers are great at observing other people's emotions, but they're not so hot at interpreting them. And so they tend to take negative emotions and think that all of them are anger. Every, my, my, my teacher's mad at me, my mom's mad at me, where your, your mom could just be upset or concerned or, you know, or anxious herself, not angry. And so we just, we want to be very mindful of that. Um, we have a whole chapter in the book about the language of a non-anxious consultant and how do we convey concern? How do we, we signal concerns about safety without making kids feel afraid of the world? Um, and so for me, I just, I'm always trying to feel if I'm feeling impatient um, with how I'm talking to my kid, you know, I want to step away because I might have reasons to feel impatient, but I'm not going to be effective in my communication with them if I'm, if I'm feeling those feelings right at that moment.
Well, both of you describe the importance of radical acceptance throughout the book, you know, going back to helping your kids make healthy choices, emphasis on the choice fact in you're asking parents to radically accept your kid might not make the choice that you want them to make. And I'm wondering if you could both talk about what you actually get in return when you practice that radical acceptance as a parent. So I'll mention that in both of our books, we say that from our point of view, we want kids to be able to run their own life while they're still living at home before we send them off to college or whatever they're going to do after high school. And it's a really, it seems like a low bar, but there's very few kids that really have the kind of experience running their own life, which is why so many kids go off to college and are home by November, because they just, they just didn't have that experience. And part of that experience is, is making decisions. And, and we, what one, of the, one, of the, um, one of the things we, are, we talk about in both books is just wanting kids to have a ton of practice making decisions about their own life. And, and we talk about saying to kids that I don't always know what's best for you. And often something that, that seems like a disaster six months later, a year later, oh, thank God for that. That led me to something really good. And so we, we want kids, we want to do it. I've always felt that the best message you can give it, best message you can give a teenager besides I love you is that I'm, I have confidence in your ability to make decisions about your own life and to learn from your mistakes. And I want you to have a ton of experience doing that before I send you off to college. And, and, and that, that confidence that, that I, I expect that you aren't gonna always make good mistakes. I don't need it. And, and that you're always gonna make good, good decisions because I don't need it. But it's that respect in that I, I, I know you can learn from this. And I want you to have a ton of practice with it. Uh, so so, so that, that's part of that accepting kids. And the radical acceptance part is, is really kind of rooted in, in various kinds of philosophy that, that, that suggests we don't really know the way the world is supposed to be. And, and so in, in many ways, it makes sense to accept the world as it is now. It doesn't mean that we, don't, we would try to make it better. But, but in, instead of internally railing against it constantly or railing where our kid is, that, that we accept. You got a, you, you got a kid who, who's, um, who's smoking pot excessively. One of the, that, just making peace with the fact that my kid's smoking a lot of pot. It, it, clear, it makes it much easier to be helpful to the kid, to, to think about, do I put him in a program? What, what do I do? Can I, can I get him into treatment? If we, if we, it doesn't mean that, that we mentally, internally accept it something doesn't mean that we as Ned said doesn't mean we approve of it and we endorse it let, let continue but it's a healthy place to start by, by trying to accepting reality as it is because it just clears our mind that we're much more skillful at thinking about how do we change it yeah it was is the is the byron katie quote that says when, when i argue with reality i lose but only <laughs> but, but only 100 percent of the time <laughs> right. you know, yeah, yeah. We're, we're both friends. We're both fans of Byron Katie's work. Uh, uh, her, her book, uh, "Loving What Is," or is that mm -hmm. "Loving What Is"? Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. You know, and and for me, you know, the the subtitle of the book um, about building stress tolerance, right? And we really we chose that concept. We chose that phrase purposefully rather than resilience, in part because I think resilience has sort of had the life beaten out of it by fourteen thousand parenting books in the last decade. But when we talk about resilience, I mean, at a psychological level, and you know this better than, than do I as, 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 as you work as a th therapist, it's really the ability to bounce back, to return to a former state, right? And one of the single best markers of 
mental health is what is our ability to bounce back, right? We, you know, because we, we hope that life goes perfectly, but rarely does that happen, you know? And so you get knocked on your keister and, and do you stay down or are you able to get back up? And if you get back up, does it take you an hour, a day or a week or, you know, you know, a decade to do that? And we know that the way that we develop resilience is, is dealing with, coping with a, a stressor, something that's tolerable. It's not, it's not overwhelming. It's not chronic. It's, it doesn't fun as all get out, but we cope with that. And so part of the, the, in addition to making decisions, we want kids to have as much experience as possible with us around them to help in solving their own problems. Because ultimately, the, one of the greatest sources of, of confidence moving into life is a sense of competency that this was a mess, but I know how to figure that out now, right? I mean, you can watch 8,000 videos on changing a tire, but until you change a tire, you really don't know how to change a tire, right? And so we want, we, we as, as parents, we have a tendency when things are going poorly to want to jump in and fix it because we're so worried about the long-term ramifications of things being a mess right now. But we have great concern that if we do that repeatedly for kids, we're depriving them of the very, the very experiences, the foundational experiences that allow them to wire a brain that when things go poorly, it allows the brains to jump into coping mode and say, well, what do I do now? Not what do I do now, but what do I do now? And you start to figure out solutions. And when kids are, are allowed to make their own decisions, as Bill points out, they have to own that. They get to own those decisions. And so they make chart a path, a, a course that is really meandering, that is, is painful and they're bushwhacking through the underbrush to get to where they want to get to. In part because they're just, they doggone it, they want to make this work because they have brains in their heads and they want their lives to work out. And particularly if, if they've been told they have to do it this way, if you have a daughter like my daughter, who's just stubborn, it's like, I'm going to make this work. And she does. And that's a beautiful thing. A little scratched up for the process. Oh yeah. But then she comes away that I can figure this out. I can make my life work. I, you know, dad's idea is great, but I don't need my dad to have a successful life. And if, if that's the outcome, well, then that's a perfect parenting win. Well, what you're describing sure sounds like the fun part of parenting, of being constantly surprised and going on this <laughs> adventure along with your kid and seeing what they come up with, right? Because otherwise, we'd just be copying, pasting our life over again. Well, there's mm. plenty of questions that I didn't get to today. I would have loved to ask you more about how to encourage parents to model self-care for their kids. And you have a large section of the book on how to help kids develop their own happiness, but we'll just have to end there for today. So I would encourage parents and coaches to check out your book. What do you say how to talk with kids to build motivation, stress tolerance, and a happy home? Thank you, Bill Sixfrood and Ned Johnson for joining us today on the show. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. also offers workplace workshops to help your team buffer against the stresses of daily life. Therapy Through Life is known for the Burnout Prevention Hackathon, which teaches your team self-care strategies that are backed by research 
to help you interrupt burnout and promote self-care. Now that work has moved primarily to virtual and work from home, Therapy for Real Life has adapted the Burnout Prevention Hackathon for the online community. Get in touch to discuss your interest in stress management, burnout prevention, relationship building, and other self-care workshops, and how to adapt these trainings for your team's needs.